the alternative stories and fake realities podcast audio drama poetry fiction You're listening to the Alternative Stories and Fake Realities podcast. Welcome to our special edition about the folklore of animals, creatures, beasts and familiars, which is guest edited by writer and folklorist Signa Marna. Throughout this podcast, as well as a panel discussion with our guests, you'll hear excerpts from some of our folklore-related audio drama productions. We'll have full credits for these productions at the end of the podcast, but listen out for clips and trailers from Selkie by Signa Marna, Hairspell, which was co-written by Terry Windling, and Daughter of Fire and Water by Lindsay Kroll. We'll also have an excerpt from Zoe Gilbert's novel Folk. We'll post a link so you can listen to all our folklore dramas, discussions and interviews as part of the show notes for this podcast. All our guests recorded via Zoom or via their own recording devices, so you may hear some differences in the quality of audio in this podcast. Without further preamble, here's our guest editor, Signa Marna. Hello everyone, I'm Signa Marna. I'm a writer who has worked on several projects with alternative stories, including an audio drama about sulkis, which are beings who can shapeshift from seal to human and a monologue based on fairy trees from Irish folklore. I also co-host the Weird Wednesday hashtag on Twitter. I have been asked by Alternative Stories to guest edit this edition about animals, creatures, beasts and familiars in folklore and folktales. Having spent quite a lot of time researching Flemish tales, I couldn't resist making some contributions myself, so you'll hear me talking alongside our guests throughout this episode. We hope that this episode will provide insight into animals and familiars in folklore and that you discover some new stories. We also hope that it will provide inspiration for writers who would like to use folklore as part of their own work. Most of all, we hope that you enjoy listening to this episode. We have assembled a wonderful panel of contributions for this discussion. We'll share links in the show notes for this podcast so that you can find out more about each of them. Now let's start this episode and hear our guests introducing themselves. I'm Zoe Gilbert and I'm the author of two novels, Folk and Mystery Facts, which comes out in early 2022. I've also co-edited uh, a recovery anthology with Lily Dunn called A Wild and Precious Life. And I co-founded London Lit Lab with Lily, where we teach creative writing, including lots of courses on folk tales. I'm Terry Windling, and I've worked in the field of fantasy literature for over 30 years now, specialising in magical fiction with mythic, folkloric and fairy tale themes. I've written and edited many books for adults and young readers, as well as non-fiction on myth, folklore and fairy tale history. Hi, hello, um, my name is Natalia Saint-Germain and I'm the founder of Swamp Sunday and the co-host of Faustian Friday, on which I'm working with my talented friends and colleagues Nivin Bader and Dirk Pühl. 
I'm the one who is usually responsible for posts uh, about Islamic culture and Norse mythology. And I'm also a PhD student in history of law and currently working on my dissertation about witch trials in Russia and Scandinavia. Hello, I'm Willow Winsham, witchcraft historian and co-founder of Folklore Thursday. I have a particular interest in accounts and tales involving familiars, so it's great to be part of this episode. Thank you for having me. I'm AC Sedgwick, host of the Fabulous Folklore podcast. I'm also a fiction author, horror film enthusiast and occasional writing teacher. If you could have a familiar, which animal would you choose and why? If I could have a familiar and choose any animal, I think it would definitely have to be a cat. Um, I've recently become a new cat parent. We've had our two British shorthair kittens for just over a month now, and they are just the best thing ever. Intelligent, inquisitive, independent, but also affectionate on their own terms, and they make perfect companions. Um, They do spend a lot of time sleeping. I can also totally get behind that. With three kids, I've got 13 years of sleep deprivation to make up for. Uh, The slight problem with the cats being my familiars might be that I'm not so sure they'd do anything that I told them to do. Um, They'd be more likely to be telling me what to do. So we'd have to see how that turned out. Um, Needless to say, though, I would only use my familiars for good. If I could have a real familiar, I would choose a mouse because a mouse is already, in my mind, my spirit animal for what it's worth. Sound is really important to me and my ears aren't actually the best. So I like the idea that a mouse with its huge sensitive ears would be able to do my listening for me. (laughs) But I also just love, I love tiny things. The idea of all that sensitivity and curiosity in something so small that can hide away. But mice can also have a huge impact on us without us really (laughs) noticing. And there's something deeply appealing about that to me. I think a mouse would be useful and would ride around in my pocket, which I'd love. I would say I wouldn't want a familiar, uh, because uh, the entire concept of uh, this uh, little creature, little helper, uh, I don't know, a pimp, uh, being given to which uh, by some sort of unholy force, uh, Lucifer, Satan, whatever, uh, is pretty much Western, and uh, I'd rather stick to my own culture. Uh, so in my case, it would be not a familiar, but probably patron animal. Uh, you know, uh, someone with magical powers who can watch over me and my family and uh, it would probably be a bear uh, because I just love bears. They're gorgeous. Ultimately, I think it depends on what you actually want a familiar to do, since in folklore they often act to do their owner's bidding, to retrieve things for them, or to work magic on their behalf. So if we're looking at the animal-based familiars that appear in medieval literature onwards, rather than the spirits of earlier texts, I think I would probably be inclined to pick something practical like a horse to get me from A to B without having to use public transport. And if we're looking at magical animals, I'd imagine I probably wouldn't need to find stables for or anything because the horse would have some means of getting home and back again whenever I needed it around. If I could have a familiar, I would have trouble choosing between a cat and a toad. Most Flemish tales tell of witches who transform themselves into animals rather than familiars. And I would personally love to be a cat now and then. I've always been interested in amphibians, but even I have to admit that in Flemish folktales, cats seem to be a lot more fun. They're known as musicians who love to dance in circles. 
There's a story about a witch called Tihinedehe. The locals were annoyed by the many cats who visited their town to hold gatherings. They tried to burn down the cave in which these gatherings were held. It didn't end very well for the locals. They were being chased by hundreds of cats. So I think the best idea is probably to remain very good friends with them. Well, I do have a familiar, an old and magical black dog who shadows me everywhere. But um, if we're talking about the classic animal familiars of myth and folklore, I'd choose one of the trickster animals, a young female coyote perhaps, or a fox or a hare, because of their ability to cross boundaries and travel between worlds. As a writer working with myth and fantasy, I'm drawn to stories of the Edwins and the borderlands between one thing and another, between the human realm and the other world, between civilization and the wild. And tricksters are creatures of the edgelands, and though they're notoriously tricky to deal with, I feel a deep affinity with them. The sand crawled underneath my clothes as I crept closer to the spot where the coats lay. I grabbed one of them and almost dropped it, having not expected its touch to be so smooth, slimy, watery and cold. Oh! What's he doing? I don't trust him. He's a land-dwelling man. He's looking at the skins. He's alone. And there's three of us. We can fight him. Seal folk have defeated humans in the past. We can win. No. He took mine. Go quickly before he takes all of our skins. Only one of us must suffer. Good luck, my sister. Take back what is rightfully yours. Return safely. Keep your wits and courage about you. Two of the girls threw their coats into the air. They fell over their bodies and seemed to attach themselves instantly, as though becoming part of them. They ran to the sea and swam away, transforming to seals as the waves covered them. The sea became wilder. The waves came closer. For a moment, it felt as though they wanted to pull the third girl in with them. Give me back what's mine. You remind me of a tale my mother once told me about mermaids. Especially when your long hair dances on the breath of the wind as it does now. If only you could see your green, bluish eyes sparkle in the moonlight and that rosy colour in your cheeks. I want to touch you. May I touch you? I I don't mean anything improper. Just a kiss on your hand. What is your favourite folktale that involves a familiar? It's interesting because normally we expect to see familiars as taking certain forms, but sometimes you have a look at the confessions and they actually name things like snakes, blackbirds, toads, beetles and even butterflies as familiars, although obviously we do have to be wary of a lot of confessions because many of them were extracted under torture. But that said, I think one of my favourite stories actually came from a nine-year-old girl who claimed that an accused witch called Alice Hunt kept tiny horses as familiars and according to the girl... Hunt actually kept these small horses in a pot by her bed and named them Robin and Jack. So obviously the child actually showed officials where Hunt kept the horses to prove that she was telling the truth, but obviously the horses weren't there. Now despite that, Hunt was still convicted and I think that the only reason why it's my favourite is because it shows that A, 
not all familiars actually made any sense, and B, it also kind of shows how desperate the authorities were to take the advice of a nine-year-old girl who was talking about tiny horses. Well, I like all of the animal shapeshifters, but especially animal bride and bridegroom stories, foxwife tales especially, but also selkie stories, frog bridegrooms, crane wives, otter brides, and the way they speak to our relationship to the animal world and the animal wild within ourselves. If I had to choose just one, it would be The Tang of Fox, a gorgeous fox wife story told by Dartmoor storyteller Martin Shaw. In his version of the tale, the human hunter loses his magical fox bride due to his own insecurity and fear. And it's a sad tale, but it has a lot to say not only how to best nurture our own relationships with spouses and lovers, but also our relationship to all that is wild and unknown to myth and to mystery. There are a lot of Belgian folk tales about witches who transform themselves into hares, cats, frogs, dogs, and so on, but there aren't that many tales in which they have a familiar. There is one fascinating story from East Flanders about the tree called Merylinde. Apparently, this tree was so big that up to 12 people could crawl inside, according to some versions, even 30. A witch and her cat had made it their home. During the day, nothing unusual ever happened, but as soon as the sun went down, the witch and the cat would crawl out of the tree and go for a walk around the village. The villagers knew that you should remain inside while they were going for their nightly stroll. But they were also relieved when they saw them passing by. If they didn't go for a walk, there was something wrong. The witch would dance in the tree branches and sing a song which was described as screeching, and the cat would dig a grave. It meant that they had met a traveller on the road who wasn't aware of how unsafe the witch and the cat made the streets at night. A group of boys once tried to chase the witch and her companion away, but they were unsuccessful. Fortunately for them, it only ended with a broken leg. What I like about this tale is that the image of a cat digging a grave while the witch makes chaos in the branches of a tree is a very powerful and evocative one. I also always have to think of Arthur Rackham's art when I think of this tale. I love the way that Baba Yaga so often has a collection of animals living with her in her hut on chicken legs. And there's a particular version or one Baba Yaga story that pops up in um, it pops up in Arthur Ransom's collection of Old Peter's Russian Tales. And in this version, the little girl. Uh, is helped by a mouse right at the beginning of the story who warns her and helps her in preparation for her visit to Baba Yaga. This mouse also seems to have the power to turn the stones in the little girl's bundle into bread and jam, which is a pretty fantastic event in this story. (laughs) And when the little girl gets to Baba Yaga's hut, uh, the animals there in this version are a cat and a dog that are both very thin and very hungry, but they're great characters and they get loads of dialogue, not surprisingly. They end up helping the little girl because she feeds them and kind of turn on their mistress. But I love what a huge part the animals in that particular version of the story have. My all-time favorite folk tale, what involves, again, uh, not a familiar, uh, not a thing, um, but a magical companion, uh, is called Ivan Tsarevich and the Grey Wolf. A lot of versions of it can be found in Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. And what I like about it so much, it's how the wolf represented in it. You know, it's not 
a familiar, it's not even a magical companion. His power is unlimited. So, for example, uh, when Ivan gets betrayed and killed um, by his own family, uh, the wolf resurrects him from the dead. And uh, I think that's what makes uh, this uh, fairy tale absolutely special. One of my favourite tales or accounts involving a familiar um, comes from the trial documents of Gwen Ellis, who was tried for witchcraft in Wales in 1594. Um, It's my favourite because it features a really unusual creature named as a familiar, um, not one of those typically mentioned, which you'll see later on. According to evidence given by the local bailiff, in 1591, Gwen, who was well reputed to have powers, and he decided to put them to the test. So he sent word to Gwen that he would visit her with some friends. There was a slight catch, though. He would not be telling her either the date or the time that they were going to be turning up. If Gwen had the powers that people claimed of her and that she also claimed, then she would, of course, know when he was due and would be able to prepare accordingly. So the bailiff, true to his word, uh, one evening he and his party turned up at Gwen's door. She let them in and they announced they wanted a drink. Um, They said they were willing to pay for it, but Gwen was having none of it, quite understandably, and refused. Uh, She was stood there with her back to the cellar door. She told the assembled men that they wouldn't be having any refreshments from her and that they should leave. This didn't go down too well. One of the men, really quite annoyed by Gwen's resistance, manhandled her and pushed her aside. Uh, With little choice, she finally gave in, um, but only after telling the group that anyone who did her harm would live to regret it. With that promise hanging in the air, she sent her maid to fetch drink for the intruders, which they soon finished, and then Gwen went to fetch them some more. She returned with a large jug, but when the men peered inside, they spotted this large fly floating in their drink. Uh, They all tried and tried, but they could not get this fly out of the jug. Um, It was bigger than any fly they'd ever seen, apparently, and behaved in strange, strange ways. And the men became convinced that this wasn't just an ordinary fly. No, it was Gwen's familiar spirit working for her and there to do do her bidding. Um, They knocked the jug to the floor finally, and then the fly just wasn't there. It was nowhere to be seen. Further add to this, um, within the fortnight, the man who'd pushed Gwen aside found himself with a broken arm, apparently the very same arm that he'd used to push her. The bailiff's wife was taken ill and she lost the use of her arms and legs. All of this was taken as proof that Gwen had taken her revenge and had used her familiar fly in part of this and this was used as evidence against her. It's not your typical familiar story and I think that's probably why it's always stuck in my mind as one of my favourite accounts. The call has been answered. It is all arranged. My poet, my musician, my scientist. All three women have made their plans and will arrive here soon. So I'll meet them at the Three Crowns Inn in Chagford. And then, if all progresses as it should, I'll lead them out to the moor. At moonrise. <laughs> Terry wrote an audio drama about hares for alternative stories, and we asked her how she used the folklore of hares while writing Hare Spell. Were there any elements that she needed to change so that it appeals to a modern audience? We took British folklore about shape shifting hares, um, full cloth and wove it into that story. There wasn't really much that had to be changed because 
the brief we had was to use British lore to create songs and stories in the Modern Fairies project. And it was one of those songs from Modern Fairies that we then turned into the Hairspell podcast. Um, so, so it was completely immersed into all of the various witch tales, shape-shifting hair tales that you get in various parts of the British Isles, which really don't vary from, from part to part. Um, there are more of them in Dartmoor than just about anywhere else. And strangely, more of them in my little village than anywhere on Dartmoor uh, seems to have been filled with women who could turn into hares. And because our stories are still told here today, they seem as contemporary to me as they do ancient. So it wasn't a hard stretch to bring the basics of the folklore into a modern setting. It starts with a letter, as stories rarely do these days. It was sent to three of us, me, Catherine, and Ealing. Dark, unmistakable silhouette of a hair. And so I replied, of course. An address in Devon. How did she find me? Who is she? I dare you. This will truly be the most breathtaking, wonderful, awe-inspiring night of your life. You will have it forever as a memory. And your work will become stellar. My work will become stellar. It's not too shabby already, thank you. Call it a challenge. Call it a gift. Whatever you want it to be, but oh, don't miss it. Don't miss it, whatever you do. I shall go into, go into a high with sorrow, sigh, and a little I shall go. Do you have any tips for writers who are researching the folklore of animals and familiars and plan to use these in their own writing? Yes, which is to immerse yourself in folklore. When I, in the role of editors, I often work with writers and sometimes young and new writers um, creating fiction out of mythic material. And a mistake I see time and time again is getting an idea for a story, reaching out for a folktale that would work with that story and then kind of grafting it on. The best mythic writers, folkloric writers, are people who who just immerse themselves in folklore constantly. And it's not just one story they're working with. It's a whole wide range of stories that they have constantly at their disposal because they're, they're reading these stories, they're listening to these stories. In some cases, they're telling these stories all the time. It, it's a language you need to learn, not a single story. And if you do that, that language will translate into the language you put onto the page. The other thing that I think is crucial is getting beyond the text, beyond the book, beyond the four walls of your house, and being out in nature and understanding nature and animals from a, um, a relationship point of view. Uh, another thing I see in fantasy in particular, a, a form of literature that is so much about being immersed in the magic of the earth. And you see people writing it who you can tell from their writing, they never go outside. It, it, your writing should absolutely have that visceral sense of the wind and the weather and the stones underfoot and the fire crackling and the campfire. And so that's my other advice besides immersing yourself in, in simply reading and, and when possible hearing good storytellers tell the tales is also to just get outside and walk the land, 
learn the stories of the land that you live on to, so that you understand the relationship between land and story. Understand um, how stories travel, what stories are appropriate to tell and graft to one setting but not another because they're cultural, they're indigenous stories, they're sometimes sacred stories. You know, it's a, it's a big thing to take on mythic archetypes. The word, um, you know, spells, the word spell is, language is a spell. Words themselves are spells. And in fantasy, we're literally conjuring magic with our words. We're conjuring it on the page, but we're creating whole worlds. We're creating new myths. And if you're going to use these ancient, powerful archetypes, you need to use them well and wisely because what you're drawing up from the bones of the land is powerful stuff. So don't just get an idea for a story and go, oh, I would like to find a story about a hawk. And I found one and it's from this African tradition and I'll just graft it over here. Go deeper, read deeper, understand the material you're working with. And once that language is in your bones, then you can translate it and alchemize it into something of your own and put it on the page and it will have power. Weirdly, it's a recurring dream I have of hairs and becoming one. I know that sounds very strange. Really? And you've written about hairs, haven't you? Yes, poetry and prose. I love them. Something about them possesses me. And I don't just mean the dream. I'm mesmerised by the thought of them. It's hard to explain. And I'm just here to remind everyone that whilst this gathering is lovely and informative and turning out to be really enjoyable, no one is going to be turning into anything. Science doesn't really allow for that sort of thing. In spite of what Auntie Witchy Woo was trying to convince us. Auntie Witchy Woo? Oh, that's good. <laughs> I have from a children's story, Catherine. If not, perhaps we could get Aileen to write one for us. Hmm? Oh, where, where did you come from? I thought you left the room. Oh, the side door just behind you. It's got hinges like butter. <laughs> totally soundless. And besides, you know, you're on Dartmoor now, Catherine. Things are different here. See, science, as you know it, doesn't always apply. Can I read you a quote? from David Abram. In his brilliant book, Becoming Animal, David Abram writes of the importance of relearning and retelling the stories that bring us back into a balanced relationship with the natural world. How monotonous our speaking becomes when we speak only to ourselves, he writes, and how insulting to other beings, to foraging black bears and twisted old cypresses that no longer sense us talking to them, but only about them as though they are not present in our world. Small wonder that rivers and forests no longer compel our focus or our fierce devotion. For we talk about such entities only behind their backs, as though they were not participant in our lives. Yet if we no longer call out to the moon slipping between the clouds, or whisper to the spider setting the silken struts of her web, well, then the numinous powers of this world will no longer address us. And if they still try, we will not likely hear them. I think that's really important. Understanding how to tell animal tales or write animal tales also means listening to the tales that the earth tells itself and that animals tell themselves. 
Why do you think that some of these animals got such a bad rap and were associated with witchcraft and sorcery? Well, in the oldest folk tales around the world, intimacy between humans and animals was portrayed as uncanny and potentially dangerous, but not wicked or immoral. Even when such relationships were doomed to failure, such as selkie wives returning to the sea, often a gift was left behind in the form of children or wealth or good fortune. Having animal ancestry in one's distant lineage was a point of pride in many older cultures. Noble houses descended from swans and bears and other creatures. But by the Middle Ages, at least here in the West, animal-human relationships were viewed more warily and creatures who could shift between human and animal shape were portrayed in demonic forms, a reflection of an increasingly Christianized culture in which the older stories were associated with all that was backwards, pagan, and therefore verboten. Ah, it's so difficult to answer to this question just briefly. Um, I would say a lot of these uh, were caused by the clash of Christianity without traditional beliefs uh, what used to be pretty much animalistic back in the days. And another reason is simply our human psychology. Uh, we tend to mystify everything we don't understand. Uh, we tend to get scared by things uh, that uh, look ugly and uh, smell unpleasantly. And um, this is one of the reasons, uh, main reasons, uh, why... Uh, some animals, for example, snakes and frogs, uh, became associated with witchcraft and sorcery, uh, at least uh, in my opinion. While animal familiars are a particularly British concept when it comes to tales of witches and witchcraft, on the continent witches often confess to making pacts with the devil, whereas in England the familiar instead seems to have performed that role, um, largely in part due to those in authority trying to reconcile the, the intellectual and academic ideas of witches and witchcraft being put forward by demonologists with what they were being told in the villages and towns by people bringing grievances about their neighbours, about everyday things and feuds that went on between them. I think one of the reasons that certain animals became associated with witches and were named as their familiars was the simple fact that they were the most common animals people had in their homes. When someone was suspected of being a witch, the animals connected with them therefore came under suspicion by simple association. You only have to look at the records from various witch trials and the animals named as familiars, such as cats, dogs, ferrets, toads, these were the creatures people had in their homes, the animals people would see them interacting with on a daily basis. Um, everything was twisted around and interpreted in a negative light through the lens of witches and spirits, including these animals that were linked to people on a daily basis. The first time animal familiars appeared in the English witchcraft narrative was actually in 1566 with the trial and execution of Agnes Waterhouse. Agnes had a cat with the unfortunate name of Satan. Um, she confessed that her pet was actually her familiar and she used him to do a great deal of harm. She had got him from her sister, um, who had in turn been given him from their grandmother, and she actually admitted to turning him into a toad because she couldn't afford the wool to line the pot where this cat had slept anymore. Over time, certain animals came to be intrinsically associated with witches in people's minds, cats and toads in particular. This was reinforcing and perpetuating the connection between certain animals and witches. Animals that roam around at night or lurk in the dark as well, solitary places, were also natural contenders um, to arouse suspicion when looking for the ideal accomplice for the witch figure. 
I can't help thinking it's less a case of specific animals getting a bad rap and more to do with the humans with which they're associated. So, for example, hunting dogs are useful to a landowner and therefore they don't become associated with witchcraft as familiars. But we then look at the English Civil War and Prince Rupert's poodle boy was considered his familiar by the parliamentarians on the opposing side. So the poodle isn't the familiar until you're up against an opponent. Or if we have a look at cats, they're helpful if you own a large house and you're trying to keep down rodents. But if you're an elderly widow who lives alone and keeps a cat for the same reason, it's the status of the human that confers the association with witchcraft. And like, to be honest, anyone who's ever owned a cat knows how difficult it is to get them to do anything, which would make them a fairly poor choice to carry out demonic chores. I think this association of certain animals with uh, witches or uh, magical behaviours is partly just because they tend to be the ones that would have been in our environment anyway. So things like cats and mice and certain birds, but also hares and foxes, um, they're just around us. But I've my theory personally is that it's something to do with being able to observe sentience in these creatures, that in the way that they behave, and um, particularly if you look into their eyes, you can see there's this consciousness in there, but it's an intelligence that we perhaps don't understand. I find this particularly true about the eyes of hares, which seem to contain entire worlds, and yet they're silent. And I think for humans, you know, it's not surprising. Anything we don't understand can be scary or dangerous, not just mysterious. And so we will blame <laughs> blame these things or imagine that there's something going on there that we can't understand and is therefore a threat to us. So that's my theory, that we recognise their intelligence, but we don't know what to make of it. Zoe, how have you used animals, creatures and beasts, real or imagined, to enhance your storytelling or as character or plot devices? When I was writing my first book, Folk, which is set in a kind of version of the Isle of Man, but a fantastical one, so quite a natural landscape, animals popped up more without me really trying, but quite naturally, I suppose, in, in terms of both folk folklore and as being sources of symbolic meaning and I think it's because they are so prevalent in folklore in the British Isles but also again it's just about them being an essential part of the human experience of the landscape uh, and they, they get to have lots of different roles in that book. I did borrow a folktale from the Isle of Man about a water bull which is a terrifying creature that swims up rivers, turns into a handsome man And then in this form, we'll steal a maiden and carry her off, uh, which, again, in, in the wrong mind might appear like a romantic idea, but it's going to have a tragic, <laughs> tragic result. And I think this is one of those patterns that it exists in folktales because we recognize it in real life. This happens. We fall for the wrong people and get hurt. Uh, but but to write that in a fantastical way using um, a creature from a folktale lets us take that one step away from reality and with that symbolic kind of form we can bring our own interpretations and our own ideas to the story and maybe more safely investigate something horrendous um, than we can if it's represented in a realist way which is harder for me to do anyway I tend to like the openness of of meaning maybe that that a folkloric version of, of something familiar 
represents. Um, there's another story in, in folk called Fishskin, Hairskin, in, which involves hairs and, and fish as kind of important animal elements. And in that story, um, the unfortunate woman at the centre of it feels herself to be pregnant with a fish. And for some readers, she really is pregnant with a fish. And for others, it's just a metaphor. And I think that's another really useful thing about this kind of symbolism is it, it can lead you as a reader to that place of hesitation where you're not sure, is this really real or is it a metaphor? And some readers will choose and some won't. But that space of hesitation of not being quite sure is, is pleasurable, but it also it attracts meaning because you have to dig around in there and think, well, what is this? What? How do I understand this <laughs> story, I suppose? Uh, and I think that's probably a technique that I use quite a lot in various ways. And the beasts in folk are often there to symbolise something um, emotional or for, from the subconscious. So there are horses in one story that are kind of haunting a sleepwalker and they represent her but again, fear and desire, but they seem to be kind of leading her into the landscape as a way of leading her through her own head, I suppose. Um, and there are also red kites in the book, the birds, which are being used um, to achieve a form of kind of transcendence, leaving the body and getting to experience flight, which is probably a fundamental human desire. And you don't really know whether they are doing it or not, <laughs> but it it allows the idea to take a physical form, you know, with wings in the sky, if you like. Uh, and I, I suppose I enjoy that effect. I love feeling pulled out of reality uh, and the creatures or bits of creatures like the man with the bird's wing in folk as well will keep kind of allowing me to do that in the story and hopefully the reader as well. <laughs> the water ball, her story goes leaps inland with the sea surf on wild nights and swims up the river, sensing souls. Then he shakes off his bull hide and hunts himself a maiden. The only way she can save herself is to cross water. I must run for the river, Wynne urges, and hold my skirts tight around me so he cannot grab them if he follows. Gingerly, she pushes a wad of wool between his head and my thighs, and I edge out from beneath his warm weight. Wynne has a look in her eye that says, defy and be doomed. And it is only this that makes me shift, for how it hurts me of a sudden to leave his warmth. I long to stroke the dark fuzz that covers his arms and shoulders. The smell of his hair is between my fingers, how a seal pup might smell. I want to rub my face against it and breathe deep, but Wynne is pushing me with uncommon strength and she hurls me through the slapping door into the summer storm. When I turn at the gap in the wall to rub the rain from my eyes, I see Wynne on the threshold, and the man's strange, wide face right there above her own wizened one. Run, girl, she bellows, and I know he is coming. 
He also asked Zoe if she has any tips for writers who are researching the folklore of animals and familiars and plan to use these in their own writing. I think it's a good start when you're reading about these things or learning about them to think about what that creature or its role means to you or what it might mean to your character, but also what it means to other people, you know, in, in a particular setting or culture, but also more generally, because they all have different resonances and some of those can be a really personal resonance, but they can be more general. And recognizing that resonance, or your own attraction or some meaning in there um, is a really useful thing to bring to your writing because you can borrow that resonance you can play on what mice mean to most people, but you can also subvert it and use that to surprise the reader. And I think we love seeing tropes being reused, given new meanings, tweaked by people. So I would say, don't be afraid of tweaking a bit of folklore, making it your own, making it work for what, for what you're trying to achieve. But also, yeah, being driven by a kind of, I just go where, something excites me or attracts me so just letting your own subconscious respond to things uh, because that kind of fascination means you're probably going to uncover something and end up answering a question that you didn't know you were asking which I think is a good way of describing lots of creative writing <laughs> is finding out what you were asking in the first place so I think anything that excites you is the way to go and not feeling as though you have to pay homage to what already exists. You can do whatever you like. Separately from this conversation, I'd been thinking about animal transformations, uh, shapeshifters, and the difference between uh, willing shapeshifting, so creatures or people who have the ability to shapeshift, um, like a selkie who can take off her seal skin uh, and be in human form, but also characters who have transformation thrust upon them usually by being cursed or uh, having an enchantment put on them which almost always involves an animal form and I just started getting interested in what those two versions of shape-shifting mean to us why we are interested by them and I came back to that idea that when we think of a prince transformed into a dove or whatever it may be maybe it is to do with our fascination with the idea of a soul or a consciousness being inside an animal body and being able to kind of see that, um, when, especially when we communicate with animals, but not necessarily verbally. But that for the flip version, so creatures or people that can shapeshift at will, this is an exciting idea because it, it contains so much power, you know, the ability to change like that, which again feels like something that's deeply fascinating to us, we can't easily change our forms and our bodies and that this might be a manifestation of our desire to sometimes achieve that otherness, to see what it's like to be completely other. Uh, so that was the beginning probably of a much bigger thought, <laughs> which I won't try to unravel here. <laughs> Thank you.
Is there a difference between how these animals are portrayed in fairy tales as opposed to folklore? Well, animals in most fairy tales are kind of portrayed as being somehow helpful to the heroine because, let's be honest, it's usually the heroine that encounters them. But ultimately, the role of the familiar in witchcraft narratives of earlier centuries, they also see these animals as helpful, but the main difference is that within fairy tales, the animals are offering their help when the heroine is in distress, so their active agents offering help to a passive character, whereas the witch is actively requesting help or commanding the help of the familiar who then obeys. So, yes, the help is being offered, but it's a shift in power from the animal offering help to the human that's commanding help, and I think that's probably the biggest difference. I think in lots of classic fairy tales, animals often pop up as magical helpers, Um, So they're friendly forces often, as long as you treat them well, I guess. Uh, Or often they're there as a human under under an enchantment of some kind. They've been put under a curse, princes in the form of frogs and doves and that kind of thing. Or they can be a stand-in for what would be a human character, as in a children's story, maybe. I was thinking of Puss in Boots when I was thinking about this. But folklore, I think it's much broader uh, and and also more likely to be negative maybe, and that the creatures, animals that appear in our folklore are often symbolic kind of representations of some kind of threat or danger to us um, that might be from an element or from the landscape that they inhabit. Uh, But they also maybe pop up to explain certain phenomenon or experiences that people have. I was thinking about how prevalent Uh, the law of big black dogs is that you know every region (laughs) has its own black dog uh, and they they they're always out at night and they're always dangerous and it seems to just be a warning about being out after dark really so yeah I think that's they kind of get this more malevolent role in folklore that's more about warning maybe than getting to be uh, fun (laughs) Um, when it comes to Russian folklore, uh, the difference between how these animals are portrayed in it and uh, our fairy tales uh, is very little. Uh, I would say sometimes it's not noticeable at all, um, because uh, our folklore, our mythology and our fairy tales and folk tales are mixed on such a deep level, uh, often uh, it's uh, difficult to tell them apart. It's not something I've really thought about before now, but yes, I would say there are definite differences between how animals are portrayed in, say, fairy tales as to op- opposed to how they're represented in other forms of folklore, for instance, superstitions. Um, I'm going to use cats again because I think they're a really good illustrative point for this. So in fairy tales, cats are often used to portray or represent a personality or a trait, or they have these personalities or traits In some, such as Puss in Boots and the variants of that tale, the cat's clever, cunning and single-handedly responsible for the reversal of his master's fortune. In other tales, um, it's the opposite. You have very lazy, very indolent animal. Cats are also sometimes people who've been transformed into animals, um, into an animal under a spell, such as in the, the princess in the white cat. Whereas in the many superstitions relating to cats, they focus less on personality and traits of the cat and the focus is on luck both good and bad in many areas of europe for instance black cats are considered unlucky whereas in england historically white cats have been the unlucky ones a cat particularly a black one coming into your house was good luck but if you lose it then your luck goes with it there's also um obviously the japanese example 
of the Maneki Neko, the beckoning cat that's said to bring good luck in various forms. In Italy, cats are even said to be useful for finding treasure in one particularly interesting folkloric tidbit. Cats are also useful for weather divining. If a cat washes behind its ears, it's going to predict rain. If they sneeze, that also means rain is coming. If they lick their fur the wrong way, that means a hailstorm is on the way. But the cat itself, it's almost impersonal in all of these superstitions. Um, it's almost like they have no influence over its actions. They're merely a conduit for the bad fortune or otherwise, which I find quite interesting. And in tales relating to witches, again, there's a difference. The cat often carries out the witches of the witch. But then there's the feeling that they're inherently evil in themselves sometimes with the link to the devil and witches again. I would say there is. Um, animals in fairy tales are often humans, cursed or in disguise. And at the end of the tale, they're back in their ordinary human skin. Whereas in folklore, shape-shifting animals are more fully animal. They might take on human shape for a while or even for a lifetime, but their essence is truly wild. They are not princes or princesses covered with fur. They are genuine creatures of magic. As archetypes, they represent the wild within each one of us. They are the wild within our lovers and spouses, the part of them we can never fully know. They represent the others who live unfathomable lives right beside us, cat and mouse and badger and owl, as well as the others that live only in the nightmares and dreams of our imagination. Animals that are associated with witches are nearly always portrayed as evil in Flemish folktales. There are stories about people who discover that they have a witch in the family when they shoot a hare, usually not fatally, and when the, sh when the witch uh, shapeshifts back into human form, the family notices that the wounds are exactly the same as the hare. It always ends up with the family cutting off all contacts. Uh, there are also stories about toads being hit into apples by witches who are planning to poison someone or witches who use animal transformation to seek revenge. There is quite a big difference when comparing these folktales to Flemish fairy tales. One that immediately comes to mind is Jan de Tovenaar, or John the Magician, who discovers a spell that transforms him into any animal that he wants. His father sells him as an ox, a horse, a hare, and so on. Uh, once sold, John transforms back and goes home. Eventually, he decides to remain a fox for the simple reason that food tastes so much better. Despite the fact that John and his father are tricking people, uh, transforming into animals is never viewed as something evil. It's just an amusing tale. I also can't help but notice that in folk tales, it's usually women who transform themselves and that they are always seen as, or in most cases, as witches and evil. Uh, I think that in Flemish tales, the only exception would be black dogs. and these tales, the devil often has something to do with it. Andrew, back already? Oh, I've been worried sick. Wait, what? Who's that? I found her on the beach. Oh, poor child. Don't tell me you got lost at this hour. And that with all the strange things happening of late. Oh, you must have been so scared. Quickly, come through. I'm not... But what are you wearing? It's a miracle that you've not turned into a block of ice. <laughs> I'll get you a blanket. How come you were lost on the beach? She's not lost. She's to be my wife. <laughs> Your wife? 
I'll visit the parson first thing in the morning. I want the wedding to take place as soon as possible. No, this is not possible. You're already engaged. That engagement is off. How dare you? How long have you two been scheming behind my back? You're mistaken, madam. I don't know who your son is. I only know that he stole from me and that he won't give back what's mine. It's just an old coat, mother. And we'll find her another. A coat? For goodness sake, why would you steal a coat? It's my skin. I'm a selkie. You go out fishing while it's forbidden and you come back with a seal? You know very well that they're the souls of drowned people. They're evil. Natalia, what's your favourite depiction of familiars in films or literature and why? I know it might sound surprising, but it's actually uh, Salim from The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. And let me explain why. The bond uh, formed between Sabrina and Salim is a healthy partnership. Um, you know, that magical entity doesn't serve her. It chooses her itself. It uh, chooses to protect and help the young witch. And that's pretty much different from what we usually see on the screen. Also, in a way that equal partnership between a person and a magical creature reminds me uh, of our Islamic fairy tales. Uh, also, uh, speaking of the different depiction of this bond or relationship between witches and uh, familiars, I absolutely have to mention Matt Vingen's uh, novel The Snow Witch. The fox in this book is sort of similar to Salem, even though uh, the novel itself is not about witchcraft at all. I would also say it's not even entertaining, but it's haunting, it's disturbing, and therefore totally worth reading. Uh, so please consider it my personal recommendation today. Breeder of the Waterfall Are you lost? My mother is a cruel god. The type that will give one moment and steal away the next. Me, Brida, daughter of Kali, of fire and water, be banished to her underrealm, so that she may only pass from the mountain at the turn of the season. At the turn. Who is your mother to have imposed such a cruel fate? Kali. You might have heard of her. Daughter of Kali. If that is the case, I really must see you better. Most of my siblings do not see it. They believe she is all-seeing, all-powerful. But many of them have merged too closely with their animal forms. Stags and does, seals and eagles. The storms have been raging for months now. There are frozen rivers everywhere you look. Tall pine trees, winter berries and flowers, stretching all the way up the mountain and down the valley. How I miss the smells of ash and earth and crisp frost, or the touch of snow on my skin. I often dream of how I might be freed of one day destroying the binds of servitude and spending every season in the land of mortals. It is a dream I've had for longer than I can remember. It's the only thing beyond my own immortality that keeps me going during the dark days. 
What do you think that animal folktales tell us about the societies that developed them and the stories that they wish to tell? I think this is really interesting because we have such different animals or roles for animals in folklore and folktales from around the world, but I don't have a comprehensive knowledge. But <laughs> I would say that I'm really fascinated by animal tricksters in stories from elsewhere in the world. Uh, they're delightful and interesting. I was thinking of Coyote and Anansi or Br'er Rabbit stories. And I don't know whether I'm right about this, but it struck me that we don't seem to have so many tricksters in British folktales and folklore. Like we have Mr. Fox and often some imps or even humans that come along and try to play tricks, but it's not quite so comprehensive. So if I had to say why, <laughs> my guess would be maybe that our landscape or our terrains just aren't as extreme or the beasts around us aren't as threatening to us. So there isn't such a great need to kind of sit with that fear or make light of it by turning these animals into tricksters. So I wonder about that and I'd love to learn more about it. But I was also thinking about the huge um, range of uh, fox stories in other cultures, so kitsune stories in, in Japan and that the, the sheer range that they get to have in these stories are everything from pure horror to kind of romantic roles. It's kind of massive. And there's a, it's not equivalent, but similar, similar sheer amount of female ghosts in Korean folklore, which I learned about when I got to go on a trip there um, a couple of years ago. And to me, I think these both maybe combine Both, both the fear of the unknown, but also the allure of the unknown and a kind of desire that we have, like that combination of romance and terror. <laughs> and I think that pops up everywhere. So like sirens in Greek mythology seem to be that, that sex and death combined together. Um, so I think, and fairies maybe, we love the idea of dancing with the fairies, but you'll probably end up not coming home for a hundred years you know there's danger and allure everywhere and I I'd love to look more into whether that's a pattern that folklore can reveal across the whole world or not. There are actually so many aspects that animal tales reflect on um, I mean of course uh, we have our own boogeyman that uh, simply keeps children from getting in trouble and that's it um, but uh, There are usually other deeper things that you can learn from animal fairy tales, uh, you know, uh, starting uh, with the gender roles and finishing with uh, the political situation at the time when those fairy tales were written. Uh, for instance, uh, our Russian trickster folks partly represents how an independent woman was seen back in the days. Or, for example, in the Kola Peninsula, Uh, we have the giant bear called Tala, uh, that likely represents the Swedes who used to attack uh, the Sami people in this area. Uh, so what I'm saying, uh, animal tales are much more uh, than they seem. Basically, uh, we can even consider them uh, our history written in a special code. That is such a big question. <laughs> There's so many different reasons why animal tales develop and so many different reasons they've been put to. But here's one, for example. In indigenous stories all around the globe, animals are believed to have the power to cause or cure certain illnesses. Animals and their spirits were perpetuated in this regard through gifts, prayers, song, dance, 
shamanic rituals, and the use of totemic objects. For example, I once watched a Tahona Otom friend in Arizona sing to a wild hawk in the mountains, slowly drawing the hawk within arm's length of where we were kneeling. The song, he said, was hawk medicine, passed down in his family, and no one else could learn that song or sing it. Now, these kind of animal tales were told not just as simple entertainments, but as teaching, teaching stories or as part of healing rites intended to foster a proper relationship between humankind and the natural world. Today, in our urban society, this teaching healing aspect of myth has become more important than ever while we stare at ecological disaster in the face and while more and more animal species fall under threat of extinction. Animal myths remind us that we don't own this earth, but we share it with others, with our animal brothers and sisters, as many tribal groups have named them. Even some of the early Greek philosophers argued that animals too could reason and love, and therefore were no less favored by the gods than human beings. To insist that man was Lord of all, they said, was the height of arrogance. I think that children might have been warned against accepting gifts and food from strangers. In one tale from Vial Salm, a group of friends are being transformed into mackerels and doomed to dance on a hill. Mackerels is the local word for witches, and they become mackerels when they accept blueberries from Gustine Maka, who is known to be a witch. In other tales, mothers save children from eating apples that, they ha that have been left behind by witches. Some of these tales also often end with Oh, you encountered the witch, well, you shouldn't have been on the streets at night to begin with. What also surprises me is how many tales there are in which the main focus is the noise that animals make at night. And it's often implied that these animals are witches who have transformed themselves. In the story about the witch and the cat who lived in a tree, which I talked about earlier, the noise that they make at night and how this noise the villagers is often described in much detail. Uh, there are plenty of other stories about cats gathering and keeping everyone awake at night or black dogs walking around on graveyards. There is even a tale about witches transforming themselves into cats and attending a very large fair. I think that this has probably something to do with what was really bothering people at the time, and in this case, just nighttime noise. Most folk tales seem to work as a way of passing on information, uh, often in the form of a cautionary tale. And some people believe that the tales of the Manticore, which was the legendary beast with the head of a man and spike tail, among other things, were actually intended to warn people away from venturing into the jungle where they'd be more likely to encounter a tiger. Now, why they didn't just use the tiger, which is fairly ferocious in and of itself, is beyond me. But it does speak to that human need to relate something in a memorable format. And in this way, I think that folk tales are a precursor to the public information films that encoded information in a rhyming format to make it easier to memorise. So you have things like coughs and sneezes spread diseases and so on. And you then avoid the dangerous area or activity in order to avoid the dangerous animal associated with it. So ultimately, you're taking the right action, albeit for the wrong reason. And beyond that, animals then begin to act as this form of symbolic shorthand so that you can communicate 
relevant values or ideas really quickly and really simply by including the animal. So, for example, everyone knows that unicorns tend to represent purity and griffins guard treasure and so on. So rather than having to include great long screeds of description about things, you can simply add the animal and people will understand the value that you're trying to convey. And it does also mean that you can convey quite deep and profound topics in a way that younger audiences in particular may be better equipped to understand. So, I mean, I'm just thinking of for my generation, we had the animals of farthing wood, and for many people, that would have been their first introduction of the concept of death. And then it was meted out weekly to a lovable band of woodland animals, which was in and of itself not probably the best way to do it. But I think this is where those kind of animal folk tales work in that way to convey the story in a way that people are more likely to relate to it. Thank you for listening to this discussion on animals, creatures, beasts and familiars in folklore. Our guests for this episode were Willow Winsham, Natalia Saint-Germain, Icy Cedric, Zoe Gilbert and Terry Windling. Check out the show notes for this episode to find out more about each of our guests. Thank you to Signa Mana and all our guests for taking part in this podcast. Thank you to Terry Windling, Zoe Gilbert, Willa Winsham, Icy Sedgwick and Natalia Saint-Germain for being our guests on the podcast today. We'll post links so you can find out more about them and follow their blogs, podcasts, websites and social media as part of the show notes for this edition. In this podcast, you heard excerpts from some of our audio drama productions. You can listen to all of these dramas via our podcast feed and via the links we'll post in the show notes. Follow us on Twitter at StoriesAlt and subscribe to our podcast in your favourite podcast app to hear more folklore content including a drama based on the folklore of Shropshire by Amy Boucher in 2022. You heard clips from Selkie by Signa Marner, featuring the voices of Louis Watson, Sophie McNair, Simone Lowe, Kelsey Griffin and Stevie Skinner, and with music by John Spires. Hairspell, which was written by Terry Windling, Faye Heald, Sarah Coleno and Sarah Hesketh. You heard the voices of Sarah Golding, Amy Forrest, Stevie Skinner and Nadia Winnerboyan. And you heard music by Faye Heald and Inga Thompson. Daughter of Fire and Water was written by Lindsay Kroll and you heard the voices of Kelsey Griffin, Louis Watson, Simone Lowe and Peter Forbes. Music was by Cameron Mackay. Our excerpt from Folk by Zoe Gilbert was read by Tiffany Clare. Folk is published by Bloomsbury and is widely available in paperback or ebook from all the usual outlets. Look out for Zoe Gilbert's forthcoming novel, Mischief Acts, which will be out in March 2022. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you may also enjoy our upcoming podcast called Midwinter Monologues, which will be out on the winter solstice, Tuesday the 21st of December. We'll have seasonal monologues from many different writers performed by the writers themselves and by our actors. If you'd like to hear more about the folklore and folk traditions associated with Christmas and the holiday period, search out our 2020 Christmas production, Snowed In, which includes stories of Hogmanay, 
an American Pioneer Christmas and wassailing. Once again, we'll post a link in our show notes. Animal Folklore has been an Alternative Stories 2021 production for the Alternative Stories and Fake Realities podcast. The Alternative Stories and Fake Realities podcast. Audio drama, poetry, fiction.